Let's pray and we'll take a look at God's word. So, Lord, we're very thankful. We're very grateful. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this church where we can gather together openly and freely to study your word and where we can serve you, Lord. And we pray this morning that that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Open us, my heart, Lord, the hearts of all these setting here. We know that your word is, is quick, living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. We need so much to hear from you, Lord. You are our daily bread. And so we ask that you speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to finish up Mark 8. I think we've been about four Sundays in Mark 8. The... Um, where we are in the timeline of events, it's somewhere in the year before Jesus is crucified. So I think it's sometimes between like uh, spring and fall of, the, of that year. So Jesus knows that next April he will be crucified. He will raise from the dead. That's what's ahead of him. Uh, last, uh, last week and the weeks before, we, had, we started with the feeding of the 5,000, actually 4,000. Uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus seeking a sign. He talks about the, um, Mark writes about the man who was blind and Jesus spit on his eyes. Remember, he first saw people like trees and touched them again. He was healed completely. And then Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? And they said different things. And then Jesus, Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Very important question. And Peter said, you are the Christ. He, he, got, he got that right. But then, just right after that, Jesus starts to talk about his suffering and his death and that he would be killed. And then Peter takes him aside, good old Peter, and begins to rebuke Jesus. The disciples just weren't plugged into this thing of of suffering and and death. And their idea of what Jesus was going to do was different than reality. So, So then Jesus, he turns to the disciples and he says, Get behind me, Satan. He says, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now that last sentence has just been kicking my spiritual rear end. It's just been haunting me here for, uh, I guess, a few weeks. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, it's necessary for us to be mindful of the things of men. I mean, we have to cut our grass, right? We have to get up and go to work. There are definitely things, you know, we have to pay our utility bills. There are things that I don't know if you can classify them as things of God. But what happens is all these things that we have to do just to live a life in 21st century America can just cloud up the things of God. And you go, sometimes you go for days and you think, oh, I haven't even taking time to pray or talk to God or read my Bible. And so I've just really been convicted to think I need to be thinking more about the things of, things of God and not so much about everything else. And so then we step from there into this next section, these five verses. And it's a very, for me, it's a very challenging section. Not challenging because it's hard to understand, but challenging because it's hard to do. It's hard to live. Uh, I'm going to read through it, and and then we'll come back and, and talk about it. Verse 34. 
when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Very powerful little section there. And we, we see in Mark, Mark is, is, is a gospel of a lot of action. Jesus went here, did this, healed this man. And we don't have whole chapters of, of his teachings. But here is just consolidated a very strong message from him. This, uh, this is nearly word for word in Matthew 16 and Luke 9. And the phrase, take up his cross, is actually six times in the Gospels. So when we see things like this repeated, we need to realize that there is an importance to them. Verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also. So who is he talking to? He's not just talking to his disciples. He's not talking to just the general public. He's talking to them both. So in that crowd, you have disciples. You have other people who are interested. You have other people that may believe he is the Christ. You have people who are skeptics. You have people who are enemies. So he's saying this to all of these people. So I, I think it's no stretch to say he's saying the same words to us today. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In this passage in, um, in Luke, he says, take up his cross daily. So, so what, what, what does this mean? Let's just take some of these terms and look at them one by one. When he says, come after me or follow me, it means just what it says. He said to the uh, disciples before they were disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We don't use the word disciple so much in our society now about things that are happening now. A word, it may be similar to apprentice. It's not just somebody who studies the book or goes to the school, but it's kind of like a hands-on thing. You're actually working with the master. And so it's, it's, when he talks to about follow me, he's talking about being a disciple. But are all Christians disciples? Are there categories of Christians? You know, these over here who are believers, who may at one time have said a prayer and were baptized and say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but you don't see much evidence in their lives on, you know, one end. And over here you have, you know, the missionaries, the people who are laying down everything and, and going out in foreign fields and stuff like this. Are they the disciples? And then there's these different categories in between. Well, to, to realize that or to, to discuss that, let's think about what does it mean to be a Christian in America today. Now, in going street witnessing, I used to ask people, are you a Christian? But I found out that that's a very broad term and it could mean almost anything. Uh, it could mean somebody who, oh, we had a, a, a cyclist that stopped here, I think it was earlier this spring, he was from England. 
And uh, on, the, on the cycling blogs, they know that this is a place they can stop to get some snacks and rest up. And, and also, he, he stopped here. He stayed about an hour, got to talk to him. He said he was a Christian, but he did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't believe the Bible. I guess he just thought, you know, love your neighbors yourself was kind of good stuff. So he, he was a Christian. So now I'll say something more like, are you a follower of Jesus or are you a disciple? And that'll make people stop and think. And then you can tell from their answer, generally, if, if they really are. But even among the people that consider themselves evangelicals or born again, there's, there's some of these folks that Christianity to them is basically you avoid badness, you're a good neighbor, and you provide for your family. So you don't kill anybody, you're not committing adultery, you're not stealing, you know, you... Uh, you're basically a good guy. Do lots of hard work in the daytime. Then you go home. You have good quality family time at night. Watch lots of TV. You don't watch our movies, just PG-13 movies. And then on the weekend, you do sports and lots of fun stuff. And all this is kind of woven around going to church. And I would say, you know, for a lot of Christians, that's, that's what it is. But I was thinking, you know, what does it really mean to be a Christian? And I have a little newsletter I get every month from Asia Harvest. It's an awesome ministry that, that uh, works with folks in, uh, in Asia, in countries where they're truly persecuted. And this whole little newsletter was devoted to Afghanistan. Now, we know we've had a war going in Afghanistan for 14 years, the longest war that America has ever fought. 30 million people, 72 people groups, all classified as unreached. In a country said to have 48,000 mosques, there's not a single visible church building. There are Christians there. There are a few who are ministering and are witnessing. You can't witness openly. You have to be very stealthy. And you witness there. <clears throat> but one of these people shared his heartache. He said the biggest challenge facing the church in Afghanistan is quite simple. Most Afghan believers are murdered soon after they convert to Christ. He arranged for a secret meeting with other Christians. Uh, he arranged for a secret meeting of scattered Afghan believers so they would get to meet each other and enjoy fellowship with other Christians for the first time. Before the meeting took place, however, many of the believers were killed. So for somebody in Afghanistan to become a Christian, it means something different than here. They know that they're likely to be martyred, they know that they're going to get persecuted and, and probably killed. Now, I would think that the idea of a Christian in Afghanistan and a Christian here is a little bit different, but should it be? So if we look at what does the Bible say a Christian is? Now, the word Christian is actually used three times in the Bible. In the first place is in Acts 11.26, and it says that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So in the Bible, it was the disciples who were called Christians, the followers, not some vague believer category, but the followers. And, and I, think we, I think that's the biblical teaching of what is a Christian. It's a disciple, somebody that's following. Um, years ago, I was, when I was working in Louisa, 
I uh, was witnessing to a, a group of guys has, passing out some gospel tracts and telling them a little bit about the Lord and stuff. And one of the guys said, a young man in his 20s, he said to his buddy, he said, he said uh, have you done this? Have you taken care of this? I took care of this years ago. And so basically what he means is, is that years ago in church, he walked forward, he prayed a sinner's prayer, maybe repeated it, and then was baptized, and now he's taking care of it. He has this get-out-of-hell-free card in his pocket, and that's it. That's it. And I think there are people, unfortunately, people like that who pastors have said, if you pray this prayer, you're saved, you know, that are going to be very surprised when the Lord returns. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. You see, there's, there's, a, there's this element of, of obedience there, right? Uh, what, what did, what did uh, James say? James said, faith without works is dead. So dead faith doesn't save anybody. Now, I'm not saying here that your good works, the things you do, is how you become saved. But my understanding of the scriptures is if you are saved, there will be some evidence. You know, there will be, you will be motivated. You will be doing things some way or the other. So my understanding of this, somebody who follows me is a Christian, is a disciple. It's the same thing. Now, if a disciple is one who follows Jesus, denies himself, and takes up his cross, right? Takes up his cross daily, as it says in Luke. So what does it mean to deny yourself? Okay, so Thanksgiving, right? You, you fill up on all that good food, and then you say, well, I'm going to deny myself and only have one piece of pie. <laughs> it's not what we're talking about. Neither is it the man who decides, well, I've had enough of this world. I'm going to separate myself from the world. I'm going to live in a cave and just pray all the time. I'll deny myself the comforts of, of a nice warm home. And, and that may be self-denial, but it's not denying yourself. And neither is it this kind of religious self-flagellation that you see that people you know, beat themselves and actually cause pain to themselves. This is not what he's talking about at all. Deny yourself. It means that your life is not centered on yourself. You're not living for yourself. When you think about things, you're not thinking about, what do I want to do? You're not just trying to satisfy yourself. You see, we are supposed to, our physical, not a physical, our fleshly body, our, our old man, the scripture said, the, the way we were before we came to Jesus is supposed to be nailed to that cross. You know, it keeps, mine keeps jumping off the cross. I don't know about yours. It keeps rearing its head. And so that's why we have to deny that, just deny ourselves and, and go on to take up our cross. You see, the cross was really a, a horrible instrument of torture and execution. If uh, Peter or Paul were to walk into a church in first century there and there was a, a cross you know, like this on the wall, I'm pretty sure it would have sent shivers down their spine because for them, the threat of being nailed to it was real. Now, for us today, we recognize it as a symbol, a symbol of what Christ did for us, of his suffering. And therefore, we can be redeemed. So that's why we have it here. But it meant something different back then. It was, a, um, it, was, it was for torture and execution. Now, when we take up our cross, 
It is not the same as when Jesus took up his cross. He took up his cross. He went to Golgotha. He died on it. He died for us. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. That was his mission. That was his cross. That's not ours. No, we're not going to save anybody if we get nailed to the cross. And neither is it your husband or your wife. You ever hear somebody say, oh, you've met my husband, right? That's just a cross God gave me to bear. <laughs> that's, a, that's not what we're talking about. What I think we're talking about here is that the job God gives us to do, what has God called you to do? You know, Jesus' job was to die on that cross. What is our job? What has God called us to do as a church? What has he called us to do as individuals? What job does he have for us? And Luke says, take up your cross daily. And I think this phrase, deny yourself and take up your cross, is basically one thing. Let's read through this again. Uh, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So our, our whole mindset needs to be, you know, with our kids, not what do you want to be when you grow up, what do you think God wants you to be when you grow up? Or, or what am I going to do this weekend? Not what am I going to do, but what does God want me to do this weekend? It's a whole different mindset. And, and uh, for folks my age, it's not what we're going to do when we retire. What are we going to do for God when we retire? What does God want us to do when we retire? Are you familiar with the second commandment that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai? When he said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. We lived in Japan for many years and we'd we'd see the Japanese go to their shrines and temples and they'd bow down to images and and different things and they'd pray there. And and we think, oh, you know, we Christians, we're not like that. But many of us, instead of worshiping being in God's image, we we make God into our own image. And the person that we often serve the most and worship the most is that image we see in the mirror every morning. And we often make a God of ourselves. And we put ourselves ahead of God, and that means that we are making a God out of ourselves. You see, God needs to be the center, the focus of our life, why we're here, why we're living every day. We live for him. It's like a wheel. If the, if the hub of that wheel is off-centered, you know, you're not going to have a very smooth ride. You may not get anywhere at all. And if, if the hub of our life is ourselves, then it's not going to work. If the hub of our life is Jesus, then we're heading the right direction. We're rolling the right way. You remember Jesus, when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested, he said, he prayed that God would take this away from him. But he said, not my will, but thine be done. And that should be our prayer every day as we deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. It's not my will, Lord, not what I want to do, but what your will is. We should be members of the kingdom of God, not members of the kingdom of self. Now, is there suffering involved? I mean, the cross certainly indicates suffering, right? Well, Jesus didn't say, take up your lawn chair and follow me, did he? He said, take up your cross. And remember... Uh, Last week, when we read the passage where Jesus came, uh, uh, Peter came and rebuked Jesus when he started talking about suffering and and dying. 
the disciples did not have that, did not understand that, that that had to happen. And they weren't wanting to avoid it. And they wanted to know who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we do the same thing. We, we like to pamper ourselves. We like to take care of ourselves. We, we like to you know, satisfy our desires and things that we want. We pamper our children. We don't want to see them suffering. And, and you know, there's that's nothing wrong with that. But in some ways, we cannot be afraid of suffering. We cannot be afraid of hardship. We cannot not do things because we think there may be some suffering and hardship involved. Some of my greatest, greatest uh, heroes are some of the, the famous missionaries of the, mostly the 19th century. <clears throat> John Patton. John Patton uh, ministered to, from Scotland, went to the New Hebrides and ministered to cannibals. He was the first missionary that went there and lived. 20 years before, some other missionaries had gone, and as they rowed to shore in the little boat, as soon as they hit the sh- beach... The natives grabbed them, killed them, and cooked them in front of the people that dropped them off. So this guy went and did that. He ended up burying his wife and baby with his own hands. Um, Adoniram Judson went to Burma. Two wives died, numerous children. Suffered horribly, was tortured by the Burmese. Hudson Taylor went to China. William Carey in India. David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a... in the colonial days, was a missionary to the Indians. And he went out and lived in the woods among the Indians in colonial New England while he was dying of tuberculosis. But because these guys were not afraid of suffering and were not afraid of hardships, there's millions of people in the world today who have come to know Christ because of their sacrifices. So could it involve suffering? Yes. Will it always involve suffering? Maybe not. In Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, let me read that to you. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, that is, deny ourselves. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, take up our cross and follow. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus go through that? For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. Now the joy of Jesus, of course, was knowing after he was crucified, rose from the dead, that through that act, through his atoning sacrifice, we receive redemption, forgiveness of our sins. And that's great joy for the Lord. Now, what joy are we looking for? If you've heard it, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. You see, it's not about this life. We are here as as God's, I don't know, green berets to serve him. And the victory, the joy comes at the end. So many people were saved and great rewards these are received when people actually aren't afraid of hardships, take up their cross. God, what do you want me to do? And do it. Verse 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life 
for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's talking about the same thing. This just builds on the last verse, right? If your whole thinking is, how can I take care of myself? How can I, how can I, what can I do for myself? What college can I go to so I can get a, a good, get a you know, good job and make money? If all these decisions that we're making are about these earthly things, <clears throat> we're desiring to save our life. And he says, we'll lose it. We'll lose it. Now, if you're saved, you know, if you're truly born again, you're not going to lose your salvation. But you may waste that life that God has given you, like the, you know, the guys that buried the talent instead of using it. So, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And that's the promise. You know, to lose our life. Just be so full of God and what he wants us to do that our own life means nothing to us. And like some of these missionaries who I just mentioned, then we'll save it. Then it'll be an amazing life and God will use it greatly. <clears throat> so is God calling you to lose your life? Is there something he has for you to do that he's calling you to lose your life for, to follow him? We look at the news and we see these European refugees. And at first I thought, this is a, a horrible, horrible thing that's happening. And it is, it is pretty horrible. But the amazing thing is that these hundreds of thousands of people that have fled Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq and, and the Horn of Africa and have come into Europe have all left countries where you and I could not go and preach the gospel. Even their own people can get persecuted for preaching the gospel. But now God has brought them all into Europe. Thousands and thousands of them. You can preach the gospel in Europe. So is God calling somebody among us to quit their job, pack up their stuff, and go minister in Europe? I don't know. I don't know. And, and you may be sitting there thinking, well, I can't do that. I got these kids. I got all this stuff. I got this job. I got these bills. I got this mortgage. Anybody in here ever, in here ever heard of George Markey? I know Tom has. Tom and Marcy have. George Markey was a Calvary Chapel pastor in Indiana. And in the early 90s, when all those Eastern European countries opened up, when the Soviet Union let go of them, he packed up his family, eight kids, eight kids, right, Tom? Eight kids, and moved to Ukraine. Didn't know anybody there. Just God called him. He denied himself and went to Ukraine. And he started Calvary Chapel Kiev. And from that, many people got saved. And from that first family going over there, there's been scores of churches started throughout Ukraine, throughout the surrounding countries, including those Muslim countries close there in Western Europe. George himself died a pretty uh, awful death. He got some disease over there, and because of the poor medical attention, he suffered a lot before he died. He died as a, well, <clears throat> in his 50s, I think. He wasn't, he wasn't real old. But his kids continued. I've met some of them in our trips to Ukraine. They continued serving the Lord. And because he died to himself, denied himself, took up his cross, and went to Ukraine. It can happen today. That's not something for 100 and 200 years ago. But maybe there's smaller things. Often God asks us to do the small things first. You know, he doesn't, if we're not faithful in the little things, he's not going to ask us to do a big thing. And the little things, maybe it's just like uh, getting up on Saturday morning and coming to men's prayer. 
You know, oh, I can't do that. It's the only morning I have to, to sleep in. But you know, a lot, of, a lot of amazing things gets accomplished in that prayer meeting on, on Saturday morning from 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock. Or maybe it's just turn off the TV and read your Bible. Take some time to pray. Work on that relationship with the Lord. Work on that communication so you can hear him when he calls you. And we're always looking for volunteers here with the cleanup crew. We've been needing somebody to come and just windex the windows. So there's all kinds of things that, that you know you can do. And, and sometimes we just need to, to ask God you know, what he has for us. Now, many of, many of you here I know are serving faithfully. And you're serving sacrificially. I know some of you are actually... Uh, suffering a lot, but you still, you come here, you work, kitchen work, the cleanup work, there's all kinds of things that goes on. And I'm sort of preaching to the choir here in some ways. But uh, I, I myself, you know, like my job is ministry. But it's easy to get comfortable in that. Okay, well, I'm serving the Lord. I got, you know, this, this is my job. But it can also get into a routine and to where you think, you know, a comfortable spot is not, such a good place for a Christian. So we need to ask the Lord, Lord, is there something in my life that I'm really not denying myself? Am, am, have, I, have I slacked off in my relationship with you? Is there something else that you have for me that I'm missing? You know, if we're faithful to ask God that, then, then he's certainly going to, to talk to us and tell us. Verse Psalm 36 and 37. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In, in Luke it says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? Gain the whole world. This is cosmos. It means everything. If we had everything, if you were the richest person in the whole earth, it doesn't profit you anything if you lose your soul and go to hell. Now, if you're saved, you know, you're not going to go to hell. But if you get your life focused on all these other things, you're not going to bear fruit and you will lose the usefulness that your life could be if it was committed to God. What Will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? We look at some of these worldly people who seem to be doing so great. Movie stars, athletes. And it's easy sometimes to idolize them and think, oh, I wish I was like them. But all you've got to do is wait a few years and read the news. And you see their lives are falling apart. You know, they're gaining the whole world but losing their own soul. I think one of the keys we have to remember here is that it's not about this life. It's about the next life. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And in Matthew he adds, and then he will reward each according to his works. Boy, this is what we're excited about. It's when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom on this earth. When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. A time when the lamb will lie down with the lamb. A time when righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is what we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want it to come quick. But look at there, it says, if you're ashamed of me and my words. If you're ashamed of me and my words. You know, we're just, um, on Wednesday night, if you were here, we're studying through the book of Genesis. And just this past week, it was where uh, Joseph was in prison and he interprets the, the dreams for the butler and the baker. Eventually he gets out and he comes and stands before Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dream. <clears throat> Joseph was not ashamed of God. He spoke, he said, God will give Pharaoh the meaning to this. Now, in Egypt, Pharaoh was a god. Would this be considered blasphemy? I don't know, but he didn't care. He was faithful to talk about God in the workplace. He was faithful to always give God the glory. He didn't take the glory. He was, he was not ashamed of the gospel. <clears throat> Adulterous and sinful generation. I think Jesus is talking about spiritual adultery. The Old Testament talks about how, how God is the husband and the Jewish nation is the wife and how much spiritual adultery was going on there when they went after other gods and worshipped other things and didn't serve God. In the New Testament, we're, our relationship to God, to Jesus, is compared as we're his bride. The church is the bride of Christ individually. You know, we've been married to another. And if Jesus is our wife, then we're to be faithful to him. If we go and have affairs with uh, well, sports or, or worldly music or all this other stuff. I'm not saying sports are bad, but you can get you can be too much of it. You know, where is your heart? Where is your heart? The script Jesus said, from the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. If your if your heart is full of Jesus, if it's full of his word, if you're obedient, you don't have to worry about being ashamed. You're just going to do it. It's going to come out of you. In James, James says, adulterous is adulterous. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is a danger. I don't think this is the danger that the Christians have in Afghanistan. You know, they said the greatest uh, challenge for the church there was when you became a Christian, you got killed. You know, I think perhaps the greatest challenge for the church here and for us as individuals is the worldliness, that it's so easy, it's so comfortable. You know, if we had a little persecution here, it might, you know, it would definitely change the way we feel about things. So, once again, it's not about this life. It's so when we stand before the judgment seat of God, the judgment seat of Christ, we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. <clears throat> I don't want to be in the line over here, the guys Jesus is ashamed of. You know, I want to be in the good and faithful servant line. And you know, that's a choice we make. We can make that choice. Are we going to be good and faithful servants? Are we going to be ashamed of him? It's a choice that we can do. Colossians 3. Let me read the first two verses to you. If then you were raised with Christ, meaning we've been born again, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. We should be seeking the heavenly things, the spiritual things. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. 
deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The theme is, is through the scriptures. <clears throat> so, in 1854, there was a man named Edward Kimball. Anybody heard of Edward Kimball? Maybe not. Okay, Edward Kimball had a Sunday school class of teenage boys. And there was one 17-year-old boy in there that the Lord led him to go and witness to him a Saturday where, the, where this boy was working. Now, so what Edward Kimball did was he denied himself, took up his cross, and obeyed God and went and shared the gospel with this young man. He was working in a shoe store. That man prayed to receive Jesus as his Savior. And that was another hint. Anybody know who it is yet? No? Nope. 1854. 1854. That's right. That's right. Moody. So, uh... A while after, Kimball spoke again, and he said, Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody, there is no limit to what God can do with a man who is yielded and willing to do his will. Moody looked him in the eye and replied, By the grace of God, Edward, I am determined to be that man. And he was. He was. Moody went on to, to witness to millions, speak to millions in many countries. And because of his faithfulness to deny himself and take up his cross, he led tens of thousands of people to the Lord. Now, in one of his meetings, a young man named Wilbur Chapman got saved. I don't think anybody's heard of him. And so Wilbur Chapman went ahead to, to also be an evangelist and hold evangelical meetings. And in one of those meetings in North Carolina, a young baseball player came. Who am I talking about now? Billy Graham. And so that young baseball player got saved. And that was Billy Graham. And so now you know the rest of the story, right? Uh, Beth and Jason, you want to come on up for a song? So there's no limit to what God can do with a man or woman who wants to be 100% committed to him, who wants to deny himself and take up his cross and follow. I think that's what Jesus is saying to us today. One of my favorite quotes is, there's only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ is last. Uh, after the song, if you, if you would like to come up for prayer, we'll have the prayer room over here. If any of you here are, are listening but you don't know what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ, you, you have not been reconciled to God, then, then please come down and one of the folks there will, will speak to you about that. So let's pray. Lord, this is a, a challenging passage. Uh, Lord, we want to be what you want us to be. We want to be 100% for you, Lord. And we want to be a light that shines in this dark world. <clears throat> in this adulterous and sinful generation, Lord, we want to be lights that shine, that shine people to you, that glorify you, that, that help, Lord, in winning this lost world to you. Lord, we pray you speak to us and show us what, what we can do. What are we missing? We need you so much, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>